something about who I am. They're just things that I happen to do. But at the end of the day, I'm basically good. And the real problem going on in my life or our lives is what's going on around us. It's our circumstances. It's the problems going on in the world that is messing up my life. And this leads people then to think that they need saving, but not saving from themselves, but from their circumstances. If if this thing could just change, my life would be better. That's the way we tend to think. But we tend not to think that there's a problem with my desires, my actions, or anything like that that might be contributing to the problems I'm facing in my life. And the result of all this, as I said, is to think we don't actually need saving. And if this in any way describes some of what you think of the world, that we're basically good, the wrong things we do don't say much about who we are, then I'd plead with you to just listen to this message as a basic explanation of why all of us need a Savior. And I should say that children who've grown up in the church might be especially prone to think in this way. A church with all of its emphasis on the things that Christians ought to do to be faithful Christians can sometimes misunderstand the gospel and can begin to think that to be a Christian is to do this or that, and because they're basically good people, not doing anything overtly horrible, they're just fine. So kids and teens, I'd even invite you to listen carefully to make sure you understand the gospel. But one of the ironic things about this reality for our culture is despite this assumption that we're basically good, our culture has developed a category for sin once again. Now, of course, they would not call it sin, but all of us are beginning to see this list of things that our society has agreed, if you do this wrong, there will be consequences. In fact, the form those consequences will take is what's being called canceled. You no longer have a voice. You're cast out. You could lose friends. You could lose a job. If you're a writer, your articles could get pulled. Your books could be pulled off the shelf. If you're a musician, you may no longer get your music out onto the radio. There's a variety of ways that if you cross this line, you no longer can function in society. And ironically, once again, for people who think they're basically good, people have begun to live in fear. Fear that they might be canceled, despite thinking deep down, I would never do that. That's only for the people who are really evil, and yet we live in this fear that we might somehow, someday, be canceled for something we say or something we do. And it would be easy for us to think this is all going outside in the world, and it doesn't go on in here, but sadly, this is true too for the church. This is true even among the redeemed of the Lord, even among those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, even those who of all people should know that because of the sin that we're born with, all of us have the capacity to do the worst of things. All of us have the capacity to be Hitler or worse. And yet, many of us assume I or we could never do that thing, whatever that thing is. And this may be most significantly true for one of the big sins in our culture today, the sin of racism. We tend to assume that that couldn't possibly be true. That may have existed at one point, but that's not true in the church, certainly not true of the people around me, and it's definitely not true of me personally. 
Let me just acknowledge that there are a variety of definitions of racism these days. And because of those different definitions, different views of what racism looks like, this actually creates a lot of tension anytime the topic of race comes up. So let me just offer what I hope is a simple biblical definition that can help us get our minds around what's going on. I think simply put, racism is the sin of partiality we find in James 2 applied to race. So James 2 is talking about partiality to the rich. I think racism, if we think biblically about it, since race is a new cultural concept, only existent since the time of slavery, uh, we might think of it this way. Sin of racism is the sin of a partiality applied to race. And I think this is helpful because that includes the belief that white people are superior to black people. That was more common during Jim Crow and during the slave trade. But it seems less common now. But it's equally applicable then to things like simply giving preference to one group based upon their race over another. Or, on the flip side, excluding someone based upon their race. Or giving preference while excluding someone. All of these things are different manifestations of the one sin of partiality applied to race. But sadly, we can assume that this is something that used to exist, but no longer exists around us. And I think we do this in part because of the shame I just talked about. The shame that if you were found out to be a racist, you would lose your friends, you'd lose your job, you'd lose your voice, everything would be gone. And that is true in the world, but it should not be true in the church. In the church, it should be a safe place to confess sin. And so both as an illustration of how safe it ought to be to confess sin in the church, and as an illustration of how blind we can be to how this sin might still reside in our hearts, even though it looks different than it used to, I want to actually share from my own story something I was reminded of in Romania. To my great shame, uh, I realized racism runs through my heart. Uh, Many of you know that I grew up in Miami, and while we were in Romania, uh, someone pointed out, oh, well, that means you grew up as a minority, which is true. I was the one non-Hispanic white person in a sea of Hispanic people, Uh, so one of the few people who did not speak Spanish. And the person who drew attention was Dave Cox, and he said, so you must understand then what it's like to be a missionary. And my immediate response was no. Because at that time, I was through and through racist. I was prejudiced against the very people I was living among. I'll share two stories to illustrate that. The first is one that happened in high school. Uh, We were on a field trip, and two of my friends, uh, mothers who were teachers, were on that trip. And they were speaking to one another in Spanish. And in the brashness of my youth, I looked behind me and said, we're in America, speak English. Now, I want you to consider the fact that there is some goodness to expecting people to learn a language when they move uh, to a country so that they can get involved in the people they're now living among, understand one another. But that's not what was going on. These are two of my teachers. All of the things they're teaching me are in English. They know English very well. They can communicate. They're just talking to themselves. They weren't talking to me. They weren't talking to anyone else. They were simply trying to talk to one of their friends in their heart language. And yet I had the brashness to say, no, you need to 
meet me on my terms, and speak the language I want to insist on. And to my great shame, I was reminded of this in Romania, as no one ever told Rory, Amy, Rebecca, or I, stop speaking in English while you're in Romania, which would have been very horrifying. But fast forward then, a few years in college, and my group of friends, we only had one Hispanic friend among us who was from Puerto Rico. And one of the ways we would tease him is to call him the Mexican, both as a way of uh, teasing him based on the connotations of what it meant to be Mexican, but also because we knew that just simply telling him he was from someplace he wouldn't would hurt him. And it wasn't that we were trying to hurt him, but we knew it would get under his skin. And this friend would again and again tell me, this hurts, please stop. And what did I tell him? In all my arrogance, I said, you're being too sensitive. You need to get over it. We don't mean anything by it. We're just teasing you. And again, at no point am I doing the racism of the past. At no point do I think this friend shouldn't be our friend because he's Hispanic. At no point did I think these two teachers shouldn't be teachers in my school because they weren't white like me. No, that, that was not what was going on. But what was going on is that I was holding them at arm's length, demanding they be like me, and even at times using culture and ethnically charged language to tease, humiliate, and embarrass them. It took me a long time to see that that was racism. It took me a long time to see the prejudice in my own heart, in particular because it didn't look like the prejudice of the past. It didn't look like Jim Crow. It didn't look like slavery. And one of the dangers for us with sin is that when we assume that the sin of racism or any sin is not true of us or cannot be true of us, then we can no longer see that sin. And if we can't see that sin, we can't get help for that sin. And so as we march forward in today's passage, which includes what was read, but also all of chapter 10 and Acts, we're going to address both the people who think of themselves as good, but are far from Christ, and those who have been made clean by the blood of Jesus, and yet who struggle, even as I did, to live out the implications of being made clean by his grace and the way we relate to others. And so as we walk through Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, verse 18, we'll see this text is tailored to teach us that there is no room for favoritism or prejudice at the foot of the cross because we all need the grace found in the gospel. There is no room for favoritism or prejudice at the foot of the cross, because we all need the grace found in the gospel. We'll see this by first considering what everyone needs. We'll see everyone, including good people, need the gospel, and everyone, including clean people, need help embracing others through the gospel. And then we'll see what the Holy Spirit does for our need. First, the Holy Spirit enables good people to believe the gospel and empowers clean people to embrace others through the gospel. And then second, the Holy Spirit works through his word to silence all objections to embracing everyone whom God has granted the repentance that leads to life. Uh, but before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word which exposes our hearts. So, Lord, today we ask that you would expose our hearts to the gospel, you would expose our hearts to grace, and that would lead us both to 
trust you instead of our works. And that would lead us then to treat others in the same way you have treated us. Not on the basis of their performance, not on the basis of their culture, but on the basis of the grace you have extended us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to taste and see the grace of our Lord Jesus today. Help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that we would come to treasure the love and grace we've received in Christ and extend that to others as well. In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you have not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, unfortunately, the weekly word and prayer only covers the last section, so I'd encourage you this just this one time uh, to use your smartphone to uh, follow along. Uh, but if you have a Bible and are not uh, familiar with it, Acts is uh, towards the end of the Bible in the second section called the New Testament after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but before the letters to the Romans and Corinthians. You'll be looking for a big, bold 10, followed by a small number 1. And due to the length of the passage and how repetitive it is, uh, I won't actually be reading it as we go along like normal. Uh, Instead, we'll be summarizing it. So let me encourage you to read this for yourself. Read as we're going along to check that my summary is faithful to the text, but also read it again this evening to simply reflect on what you've heard and allow that to stir your heart again. So once you've found Acts chapter 10, verse 1, take a moment uh, to quietly prepare your heart to receive God's word. Ask him to help you surrender your distractions and hear what he's prepared for you. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Well, in the first eight verses we see, that everyone, including good people, need the gospel. Everyone, including good people, need the gospel. Uh, In verse 1, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A title that implies not only his power as an officer in the Roman army, overseeing 80 soldiers of his own, Uh, but in all likelihood, implying that this man had come from Rome itself and was a natural-born Roman as opposed to someone who had been recruited as an officer from conquered people because he was a part of the Italian cohort and the army. This man, then, is the epitome of who so many people, or of who so many the Jews hated. He's not just a Gentile outsider, but he's a true and true Roman oppressor. He's come from Italy, conquered Israel, and now reigns over them. And yet at the same time, in verse 2, Luke is at pains to describe this man as a model religious person. He was devout. He feared God. He led his entire household to fear God. He gave alms generously to the poor, and he prayed continuously. If there was a checklist for being a good religious person, this centurion made it. He was the epitome of what it meant to be a good and faithful religious person. Yet despite this goodness, God still sends him an angel in a vision telling him to call for Peter, an apostle, to come visit him. Although at this point in the story, we don't know exactly why Cornelius needs an angel to come to him and 
uh, or needs Peter to come to him and give him a message, we know that what's coming is that Peter's going to present the gospel to him. What he needs is to hear the gospel. And just as a side note, you may hear often about uh, Muslims in the Middle East having visions. Uh, What's unique about that and this story is these visions again and again are of a man often saying, go find this person to tell you something. And in the kindness of God, what that shows us is even though he could reveal himself directly, tell the gospel to people directly, he's actually saying, I want you to be a part of this. And so I'm going to tell someone to come to you to speak the gospel. And so we all ought to be then prepared to be that kind of person. And so if you're a Christian and fear that, please wait for a little bit later in the message when we see how Peter preaches the gospel. And maybe use that as a summary of a gospel presentation next time the Lord would give you opportunity. But the broader point here is even this very good person needs the gospel. He needs Jesus. Why? Well, because in the biblical view, no one is good. No one seeks good. No one does righteous. To commit even just one sins reveals we are not good, but sinners. Listen, we sin because we're sinners. It's not that we sin and that makes us a sinner. Our sin reveals what's already going on in our heart. And further, as James says, to break even just one biblical law is to break all the law and to deserve its punishment. So even the person who is generally good, does a lot of kind things, gives to the poor, does all the socially acceptable causes these days, is religiously faithful, tries to obey God, and on and on we could go. Apart from God's saving grace, they are not good. Why? Because if you obey God without being accepted by God, you're obeying to get a reward. You're doing it for yourself, for what you can get from God, for the approval you might be able to get from others, or even so that you might advance your career in what is now being described as socially responsible capitalism. But none of those things are because you're a good person. Those are because you want something. It's for the reward you can get. The reason even good people aren't good is because even our motives can be corrupted. And the choice facing every person then is will I put my confidence and my goodness, my performance, my achievement, or will I put my confidence in the grace of Jesus Christ? And the choice facing every person who has come to Jesus is will I continue to put my confidence in the grace of Jesus? Or now that I've come to him, will I start to try to earn his love by my performance, by my academic achievement? by my career, whatever it may be. Where is our confidence? Is it in our goodness? Is it in the grace of our Lord Jesus? Where is your confidence? Everyone, including good people, need the gospel. And so this angel has appeared to the good Roman centurion, telling him he still needs the gospel and urges him to go to Peter so that he can hear the gospel. And so in verses 7 through 8, Cornelius does that immediately. He sends his servants to go. uh, And even as they arrive, Peter here is going to need some help to be prepared for this encounter. Even the apostle Peter, who has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, 
and who had become the early church, actually needs to be prepared for this encounter with Gentiles. And so we see in verses 9 through 33 that everyone, including clean people, need help embracing others through the gospel. Everyone, including clean people, need help embracing others through the gospel. And here I'm using the, clean, the word clean as shorthand for those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, who have had their sins washed away, as well as uh, to consider the fact the Jews, like Peter, thought in terms of clean and unclean. The Jews were clean, Gentiles were unclean. There was food they could eat that was clean, there was food that they could not eat that was unclean. There was things they could do that would keep them clean or make them clean, and there was things they could do that would make them unclean. And so as Cornelius' servants make their way to Peter, God gives Peter this vision in verses 11 through 16 to begin to help him deal with his bias towards unclean things. And so in that vision, Peter sees a picnic prepared for him full of all kinds of animals. I'm imagining that there's probably bacon on this picnic. Uh, That would just be so appealing. But it included animals that in the Old Testament had been forbidden to Jews because they were considered unclean. And a voice tells Peter, kill and eat. But Peter, as a good Jew, perhaps thinking he's being tempted, says, no, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. But then the voice doubles down and reveals this is actually the voice of God. Because then God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Like everything in Peter's life, this vision came in threes. Just as he had denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus had exhorted Peter three times to feed his sheep, so too this vision comes to Jesus three times. And Peter three times says, no, I'm not going to do this. And three times the voice says to Peter, do not call common what God has made clean. Now we need to be careful that we're not too harsh towards Peter. It may seem like he's being a bit dense here, but we may not understand how profound the shift is taking place in Peter's life right now. Previously, what had set the nation of Israel apart and Jews apart was their unique way of life, was their unique customs, their unique dress, their unique diet even. That was what set them apart as God's holy nation, as God's chosen people. And so it was ingrained in Jewish people from birth that this was how they had to live in order to show themselves set apart for God. And yet with Christ, the law has been fulfilled. And those who trust in Jesus are clean, regardless of what comes into their body. And so now they're shown to be Christians by the blood of Jesus and by their imitation of Christ, not by their unique culture. And this is a massive change then for Peter. Uh, Verse 17 says, even after hearing it three times, he's still perplexed about this as the people arrive. And yet God is preparing him for this broader encounter, not just with unclean food, but with people Peter would have considered unclean, the Gentiles. And so in verses 17 to 20, as he's pondering this vision, Cornelius' Gentile servants arrive, ask if Peter is there, and the Spirit tells Peter, just in case he may have missed it from the vision, that he should go with them without hesitation because the Spirit had sent them. And so in verse 21 through 23, after asking Cornelius' servants for a few more details, the next day they make their way to Cornelius' house, and Peter takes a few Jewish Christians with him from Joppa. 
And when they arrive, I want you to notice how Cornelius is prepared in verse 24. In verse 24, it says that Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Although Cornelius didn't know what he was going to hear, he recognized that this message was important enough that those he loved most, he wanted to hear it. And so he had gathered them together. And the same ought to be true for us today. Knowing how important the gospel message is, we ought to be on the lookout for ways we can draw our friends, our family, into conversation about the gospel and into relationship with gospel people. I want to ask you, what step can you take, especially as the holidays come, to expose your relatives and friends to the gospel and to gospel people? You need to throw a Thanksgiving party and invite relatives and close friends as well as friends from the church so that we can all intermingle together? Do you need to invite a friend to church or to your small group? Do you simply need to finally ask a friend, can I tell you about Jesus because he's really important to me? Regardless of what step you can take, consider Cornelius and his heart for these people. He wants them to be exposed to this message. And consider what step you can take to expose your loved ones to the gospel and his, the, the people of Christ. But then notice the broader point in verse 28 through 29. As prepared as Cornelius is to hear from Peter, he's gathered everyone, he's eager to do it. Peter is still struggling to be with Cornelius and those he's called together even as he's also trying to be obedient and faithful to God. We might have expected that given what Jesus had said, that they would be their witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that Peter would have leapt at the opportunity to preach the gospel. However, instead, he reminds them it's unlawful for Jews to associate with Gentiles, but that God has shown him that he should no longer consider them unclean. And then he goes on to say that when he was sent, He came without objection, almost implying that if the Spirit had not spoken to him, he would have objected at going, that he would not have gone. And then finally, instead of just telling them the gospel, he asked Cornelius, hey, can you tell me what this is all about? And then as Cornelius recounts, the last thing Cornelius says is, we want to hear what the Lord has commanded you to say. Implying the Lord has already told Peter, say the gospel to them. And yet Peter is reluctant here. And it might seem to us that Peter is rather slow again. He's repeated visions. The Spirit has told him to go. Cornelius and others are eager to receive the message. The Spirit has even told him to preach the message. And yet, at the very minimum, he seems reluctant, maybe unwilling to go. He's reluctant, maybe even unwilling to associate with these Gentile outsiders. And reluctant to explain to them, the gospel. Clearly, Peter needs the Lord's help to embrace these religious outsiders, these cultural outsiders. And as formative as this experience will be for Peter, this will be an ongoing battle in his life. According to Galatians 2, sometime after this event, in the next five to ten years, Paul will have to confront him again for failing to treat Gentile Christians like brothers and sisters in Christ. Despite him getting it here, He's going to continue to struggle with it. And so maybe Peter is slow. 
Let's remember he's not slower than any of us. All of us can be slow to understand and apply the gospel to our lives. Being cleansed by Jesus is no guarantee that we will live out the implications of that cleansing by embracing cultural, religious, or even economic outsiders. We need help to overcome the barriers relationally in our life. And so as one scholar points out, this passage is beginning to show us not only that God includes the unclean Gentiles, but he also has asked Peter, a Jew, to cross the biggest barrier in his life to pursue Gentiles, to associate with them, to eat with them, and as we'll see, to preach the gospel to them. And so I want to ask you, what is your attitude towards outsiders? Who is unclean in your eyes? What's your disposition when you encounter a person with tattoos and multiple piercings? Or someone who dresses in the fashions of our culture? How would you speak and act when introduced to someone whose politics are different than you? Would these kind of outsiders be welcome in our church, or would they sense they don't belong? Or in our area, perhaps I should ask specifically, what would your attitude be towards a Scientologist family moving into your neighborhood. The city of Clearwater and the Tampa Bay area is certainly suspicious of them, and in some cases, outright hostile towards the Scientologist community. And sometimes, maybe rightly so, for the ways we've heard stories of how they've treated ex-Scientologists in the past, and even how secretive their plans for downtown Clearwater have been. But I want to ask you this. Are Scientologists any less in need of the gospel than Hindus, than Muslims, than the secular people that walk around us, atheists, agnostics? No, absolutely not. These precious people desperately need the gospel, and how will they hear it unless someone goes to them? We're here. As I, we've gotten to know folks in our neighborhood, we're learning. People are moving from all across the nation to come here to be a part of the Scientologist headquarters in downtown Clearwater. What a rich opportunity to reach people with the gospel. You know, one of the sad realities is the suspicion and hostility towards them infects the way we think about evangelism. As I was talking about one person, they warned me to be careful as we talked with our neighbors and maybe to avoid them altogether because they were afraid. But but again, I, I wondered to myself walking Would you tell that to a missionary who's gone to the Middle East? Be careful. No, duh. If someone converts in the Middle East, they could die. Yes, I need to be careful. These people need the gospel. They need Jesus. We can take that small risk. So I'd ask you, what is your attitude Towards outsiders. This text teaches us that no wall should keep Christians from offering the gospel of Jesus freely and lovingly to everyone. And so is this a struggle for you with certain groups of people? Any of the ones I've named or other groups I've not named? And be honest with the Lord about that. Be honest with a brother or sister in Christ about that. And together, go to the Lord in prayer that the Holy Spirit would change your heart that he would help you to not forget how to have small talk with the people that kind of freak you out. That would 
He'd help you to simply be able to ask good questions and get to know them and love them so that you might eventually point them to Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit delights to do. And we see this in the next section. But what does the Holy Spirit do then to help good and clean people? We see in verses 34 through 48, the Holy Spirit enables good people to believe the gospel and empowers clean people to embrace others through the gospel. So finally, in response to Cornelius' instructions in verses 34 through 43, Peter begins to explain to them the gospel message they've been waiting for. And this time he summarizes the gospel this way. Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord of all. And so in keeping with the ongoing work that God is doing right now in Peter's life, he's increasingly realizing in verses 34 through 36 that God shows no partiality. The gospel is for everyone, including the Gentiles he thought were outsiders and that God would never show grace to. And so the gospel is for everyone, including the Gentiles, because Jesus is Lord of all. Second, he points out that Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to liberate the devil's captives. In verses 37 through 38, Peter recounts Jesus' ministry on earth, in particular the moment the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and empowered him at his baptism and then his ongoing work to heal those who were being oppressed by demons. This is the ongoing work of Christ as he releases captives from their sin, their blindness, and slavery to the devil. And then he points out that Jesus died under the curse deserved by others. In verse 39, he recounts how he saw Jesus put to death, hanging him on a tree. A little reminder that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place, experiencing a curse we deserved. Because according to the Old Testament law, anyone hung on a tree was under a curse. Yet, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, does not deserve a curse. He did not deserve punishment. And so when he was crucified, he received the curse that you and I deserved. He was punished in our place. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus was raised up to reign forever. In verses 39 through 41, Peter recounts how Jesus rose and interacted with with him and with other witnesses who could now testify to the fact that Jesus had conquered sin and death and was presently reigning and ruling because he had risen from the dead. And one day, fifth, Peter says, Jesus will judge everyone. According to verse 42, Peter has commanded to preach that the same Jesus who died for our sins is the same Jesus who is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. And finally, all of this, he says, is in accordance with the scriptures, which promise forgiveness for everyone, from every people who trust in Jesus' name. So according to verse 43, although Jesus will judge the living and the dead, and those who have done sin, which is everyone, can expect condemnation, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. Instead, they can be forgiven and receive mercy Instead, they will believe this gospel message. So quickly to recap, the gospel message that Peter preaches to Cornelius and his household is this. Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord of all. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to liberate the devil's captives. Jesus died under the curse deserved by others when he died on the cross. And Jesus was raised up to reign forever. And then Jesus will judge everyone. 
And all of this is in accordance with the scriptures which promise a forgiveness for everyone from every people who trust in Jesus' name can be the end of the story. And this, if you're not a Christian, is what we want you to believe. If you have been interested in Jesus or appreciated our church, but you have never turned from sin and personally trusted in Christ, and the Bible says when Jesus comes to return everyone, you'll be condemned. What you can expect is eternal darkness, eternal loneliness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal torment. This is the condemnation that awaits those who do not trust Christ for their sin and rebellion against him. But listen, if you would turn today and trust him, you could be forgiven instead. You could see, receive life instead. You will be welcomed into his presence for all eternity instead. This is the hope of what Christ has accomplished. This is the hope of what Christ will bring when he comes back. And so I would plead with you, repent of your sin and trust in him. If you need to talk with someone about what that means, what that looks like, come talk with me after the service. I'd love to tell you more. Let me plead with you. Don't put off this decision. It's an important decision to consider, and so you want to think it through. Because once Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of all. Your life is over, and it's all about him. But don't delay. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. It could be 2,000 more years from now, or it could be an hour from now. We don't know. And so if at all you're thinking about this, plead with you, think through it deliberately and urgently. And we'd love to be a part of that if that's something you're interested in doing. So Peter, as he preaches this gospel message, verse 44 says, the Holy Spirit falls on all who hear the word. This is a picture of how we become Christians. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so as they hear Peter preach the gospel, they believe the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit. And this is also the gift the Holy Spirit provides to those who think themselves good. He enables them to see they need the gospel. He enables them to then believe the gospel. And then as a result of that gracious work, they receive him as a gift forevermore. In this case, the Holy Spirit is poured out in a powerful and visible way. According to verse 46, the Jewish Christians hear these Gentiles now speaking in tongues or other languages. And in those other languages, they are now praising God, offering him worship, which amazes the Jewish Christians who thought the Spirit would never come to Gentiles. Now, the gospel would never be for them. But now it's clear the gospel is for them and the Spirit has come upon them. Even Peter's amazed. And as a result of this, the Holy Spirit being poured out in a clear and visible way, Peter asks if they could withhold water for baptizing these people since they had received the Holy Spirit. And the significance of this is not just that baptism is our proclamation that we believe in Jesus, but baptism reflects the church's acceptance and welcome of someone into the church community. So what Peter is saying here in baptizing them is I'm welcoming you. His brothers and sisters. This guy who's been so reluctant to associate with unclean people now recognizes them 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of what the Holy Spirit has done, he knows he can't hold them at arm's length. He can't continue to stiff arm them. He has to embrace them in the name of Jesus. Just notice here then, it's the same Holy Spirit who enables this good Cornelius and all who are with him to recognize they need the gospel and to believe the gospel. But it's also the same Holy Spirit who empowers Peter to finally overcome his prejudice, his favoritism for Jews, or simply his reluctance to embrace outsiders. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit is the one who breaks through his heart so that he would do what God has called him to do and count them as brothers and sisters. I want you to notice two things that are significant about this. First, in addition to this change being the Spirit's work, I want you to notice then that reconciliation with others actually begins with reconciliation with God. Now that Peter has clearly seen the gospel has come to Gentiles, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them, he cannot help but embrace them as brothers and sisters because God has adopted them. They are now his. Who is Peter to refuse them? This is why Paul would later write in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. It's not that the differences between Peter and Cornelius as a Jew and Gentile had disappeared. Or that the differences between men and women have disappeared. But rather that when we come to Christ, there is a radical equality before the cross. Because we have all received grace. And so because we've been reconciled to God, then we can be reconciled to others. And reconciliation with God is what enables our reconciliation with others. And all this then unites us to one another. We're one. Because although our other identities remain, we still remain white or Asian, we still remain male or female, all these things remain. But now our primary identity is Christian. Our primary identity is heir with Christ. Our primary identity is loved one. That becomes what is most true of us. And all of our identities take, other identities take a back seat. This is what it means for us as a church to be a reconciled community. We aim to demonstrate that our community is united because of Christ across every barrier that could divide us. And so our prayer as we faithfully share the gospel and make disciples of all people is that increasingly anyone who looks in on our church would be able to see that what unites our church is not our common interests, not our musical preferences, not our political convictions, not our age, not our nationality, not our ethnicity, not our financial status, not our education, not our stage of life. Move on and on and on. None of those things. Rather, what unites us is our common faith in Jesus. The fact we have been shown grace, that we have been made clean by his blood. And dear brother and sister in Christ, if you know Jesus, that is who you are. You are clean. You are his. And you are a part of a great family with many brothers and sisters in Christ. The second thing I want you to notice here is how much work it took to overcome Peter's prejudice. First came three visions from God. Second came a divine command from God. Then came the Gentiles' readiness and eagerness to receive the gospel. 
And then came the Holy Spirit pouring himself out upon these Gentiles. I just want us to observe, it took a lot for Peter's attitude and behavior to change, if not his actual heart to change. And God did much more in this one instant than we often see him doing with other people visibly. And this ought to encourage patience in both ourselves and others when people take time to change. It takes time to become who we already are in Christ. So we should be patient with ourselves. We should be patient with others. Now, I don't mean the kind of patience that never corrects or never draws attention to something that's wrong, but I do mean the kind of patience that recognizes it takes time for people to change. And so if it took such a great work to change Peter, we ought to be patient as the Holy Spirit works through his word to bring change to other people's lives. And so when you struggle to be patient with those whose sin or immaturity seems so obvious to you, would you please remember the patience of God to Peter? But much more importantly, remember the patience of God to you. What did it take for you to become who you are right now? And how much more does the Lord still have to do in your life? And then extend that same patience to others. His spirit will work through his word. That's what he promises. We can be confident of that then as we're patient towards others. So the Holy Spirit enables good people to believe the gospel and empowers clean people to embrace others through the gospel. And yet the story doesn't end there. In 11, chapter 11, verse 1, Luke recounts how the apostles and others in Jerusalem heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Yet instead of celebrating this joyous news, a complaint arises against Peter and his companions as they criticize him for eating and associating with Gentiles. And so as Peter responds, we see in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1 through 18, the Holy Spirit's work through his word silences all objections to embracing everyone whom God has granted the repentance that leads to life. So in response to this objection, Peter recounts the entire story of how and why he had gone to Cornelius and showing how he had, in fact, initially had similar objections to the people who were criticizing him. But how slowly but surely the Spirit's work through his word slowly overcame all of them. And just as a side note, sometimes this passage is used to teach that to become a Christian, you have to give visible evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life specifically by speaking in tongues. And I just want you to notice that's not the best understanding of this passage because of why the Holy Spirit did this. The Holy Spirit does this in this unique case because of what we're reading right here in chapter 11. The Jews would not have accepted the Gentiles in any other way. And so the Holy Spirit pours himself out in this visible, overt way to make it absolutely clear the Gentiles have been accepted. Not because... You have to have this experience in order to become a Christian. But what's remarkable is that as Peter tells this story, slowly but surely, in the same way that the Holy Spirit had overcome Peter's barriers, as Peter leads his critics through his story, explaining along the way from Scripture what was going on, the Holy Spirit also begins to overcome the critical hearts in Jerusalem, with the result that in verse 18, those who had heard Peter's story fall silent. They have no more objections. And how could they? For it's God himself who has led Peter to the Gentiles and poured out his spirit on the Gentiles. 
And I think this can be instructive to us when we experience criticism or objections to our ministry. That once again relates to what we've already seen about patience in Peter. Of course, Peter might or people might have legitimate objections or criticisms to your ministry. And we need in humility to carefully consider those things because God can use them to help us be more faithful. Yet it's also possible that people will object or criticize for the two reasons they objected or criticized in Peter's case. Because they didn't understand the scriptures well enough or because they hadn't had Peter's same experiences. In the case of this criticism, we see both. They had not thought through the implication that Jesus had said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which meant if you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, we cannot withhold baptism and acceptance to the Gentiles. They didn't know their scriptures well enough. But they also had not had Peter's experiences. Peter had been given visions. He had been given direct commands. He had seen the eagerness of the Gentiles. He had seen the Holy Spirit pour out. And so just as God did with Peter's critics, one way the Holy Spirit can bring along your critics is simply by joyfully recounting the work of God in your life, explaining from the scriptures God's work, so that former critics might begin to begin to see that the Lord is good as they taste and see him through your ministry and through the scriptures. And as a result, begin to glorify God also. And so while we'll see in the coming weeks that not everyone was persuaded by Peter, at this moment, the majority glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted the repentance that leads to life. They recognize two things here that are worthy of worshiping God. First, the gospel has come to the Gentiles. God had a plan from the very beginning to make his name known among the nations, including incorporating them into his covenant with Christ. This was worthy of glorifying and worshiping God that he had included a people who are far off into his family. But second, they worship him because it is God who had granted the repentance that leads to life. And this is one of the great mysteries of the faith that is worthy of worshiping God for. As the book of Acts highlights again and again, mysteriously, our salvation is both of God, and totally of his sovereignty, and yet we remain responsible. And so here we see in particular that although the response Peter called for in his sermon is to believe the gospel, and the response implied in verse 18 is that we would repent of our sin, at the same time, verse 18 affirms it is God who gives the gift of repentance. It is God who grants the repentance that leads to life. In this way, although everyone has a responsibility to respond to the gospel and repentance and faith, even our response is all of grace. How amazing our God is that he is so gracious. We worship a great God. From the very beginning, our God was a missionary God seeking to redeem a people from himself, from all the nations, from every tribe, tongue, and people. And our God is a God all of grace. He created us to show us love when he didn't need love. He already loved the Son and loved the Spirit, and they loved the Father. He didn't need us. Not just that. He sent his Son while we were enemies. He didn't need to do that either. And he even gives us the gifts of repentance and faith that today we might experience 
his grace. He is so gracious to us. And so as a result of God's work to include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into his people by grace, that means there's no room for favoritism or prejudice at the foot of the cross. Because we all need his grace to get there. We all are sinners who've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And it is precisely this that we celebrate in communion. In communion, we remember that God has shown us grace by sending his son to die in our place. His body was given. His blood was shed to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to make us one. And those who have received his grace then have been made into one people. Look up and look around for a second. Seriously, look, look at each other. I know this is going to be a little awkward, but do it. I just want you to notice we're not as diverse as the latest cast of a Hollywood movie. But right now, I know you see folks young and old. You see new believers, mature believers. You see people with college degrees and others with GEDs. And people with wealth and people who are struggling. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we are one in Christ. We are a new family. And this meal that we're about to take together is what celebrates our unity in the gospel. And one day when he returns, we'll be a part of an even far greater celebration. And we'll come to the marriage supper of the Lamb with people literally from every tribe, tongue, and nation, praising God in all his glory. And we will feast together and worship of him. And so in communion, we remember the cross, we celebrate our unity, and we anticipate and hope the great meal we'll share when Christ comes back. But before we share this meal together, Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 11. Let a person examine himself then, And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And in the case of the Corinthians, he says, this is the reason some of you are even dying. This is a serious thing. This doesn't mean you have to be perfect to take communion. Paul does not say only perfect Christians can come to the table, otherwise we'd never share this meal. And this doesn't mean you need to examine your health, yourself to an unhealthy point of introspection, looking for every single sin you may have ever committed in the last month. Instead, it means we should examine ourselves to see if we're Christians. So if you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, then this is not a meal for you. And I would plead with you, stay in your seat right now, and instead use this time The fact that the bread reflects the body of Christ given for you and the cup reflects Jesus' blood shed for you to reflect on what Jesus has done for you. He wants you to come to him. And if that's something you would be interested in, again, please come talk with me after the service, talk with any of our members. We would love for you to receive the gift that Jesus accomplished through the cross and his resurrection. But use this time to meditate on that. But second... This means we should consider and examine our hearts before God in the church. We don't need to examine our life for every incidental sin. Instead, we should consider, are there 
patterns and habits of sin that we're not ready to let go of. Things that we clearly love more than Jesus. And if those things are emerging in your life, then I encourage you, surrender them now. Maybe talk with someone. But do not come to the Lord's table if you love your sin more than you love Jesus right now. Instead, use this time to reflect on what he's done for you. The second thing we ought to consider about our hearts is our heart with other brothers and sisters in Christ. There is hate in our heart, bitterness in our heart, unforgiveness. And this is not the time to come to the Lord's table. This is a celebration of our unity. And so if you are struggling to forgive someone, I'd plead with you, use this time to confess that bitterness, confess that unforgiveness to the Lord, and then receive his forgiveness. Consider your debt before him then. How great a debt you owe. And then consider the debt owed you by the person you're struggling to forgive. And I pray that that will begin to melt your heart towards them as you see the debt they owe you is far, far less than the debt you owe Jesus and that was forgiven by his blood. But for those of you then who none of these exhortations prompt personal reflection, Use these next few moments to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. You can see these questions on the screen. But where is your confidence? Is it in your goodness or in the grace of Jesus? What is your disposition and conduct towards those who are culturally, religiously, or economically different than you? Are you cold and indifferent or joyfully pursuing those who are different than you? Where do you see the Holy Spirit patient and yet faithfully softening and changing hearts to believe the gospel and grow in living out the gospel. And finally, how can you joyfully glorify God for his work through his word, even when others are objecting to it or criticizing it? Let's take a moment to examine our hearts and to consider what God has been saying through his word.